the title of my message could actually be a question too. Uh, know what you believe is the title. Know what you believe or know what you believe. Uh, that could be also uh, a part of this. I want to make this statement, and it's not that I haven't said this before, you haven't heard this before, but we are in war. We're in a war. And I don't mean a natural war, but I'm talking about a spiritual war. On Sunday, um, it was a great uh, spirit in the house. Nothing like that. It was great. But you know, I looked around. It was the second weekend after Easter, and it happened to be probably the lowest attended service that I can remember in a while in this church, unless it was like a freak thing in the middle of the summer or freak thing in the middle of the winter was weather's bad. And uh and first service was okay. Second service kind of so. Um, and I'm and, and I'm thinking, wow, we come off of this high of winning 500 people to Jesus, and we send them back, and we don't know who they are. We just do what we're called to do. Someone says, well, how come they're not here? I don't know. May may not live in the area. I have no idea. Our job is to cast the net, and we do the best we can in bringing them in. But I noticed that most churches the set, the weekend after um, on Easter uh, Sunday is the lowest attended Sunday. Well, we weren't. It was a highly attended Sunday. But the weekend after that, two weeks after uh, Easter, it was like, whoa, what happened? And I know there's prom going on, and that's going to happen this month, and I know there's graduations, and I get all that. But I really, I'm, I'm really, my heart is anticipating something much more. I'm believing God for people to change their schedules around what God wants. That's the next level Christian. And when you know what you believe and you know whom you believe and whom you are, that changes everything. The dynamics of your life begin to change. And I recognize that, once again, we are in a war. It's not natural. It is spiritual. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. That's what the Bible says, and so that's what we never do. So that night, Sunday night, so, well, Lord, whoever comes, comes. It is that kind of weird Sunday. And uh, to my amazement, uh, we didn't miss a beat. We had about the same crowd we always get on a Sunday night. And we went to war. I mean, we went, we went in prayer. And I want to remind people that when, we want, when we're fighting in a war, it's not natural. It's spiritual. And one of the greatest ways you'll ever fight the enemy outside of the word of God is in prayer. Matter of fact, you pray and you declare the word of God. So I want to invite people to come that once a month, come out and pray with us. It makes a big difference. Now, all throughout the New Testament... It's replete with scriptures on military terminology. You see it's used, it says in the word of God, the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God, the Bible says. The Bible says be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The Bible says put on the whole armor of God. And the Bible says fight the good fight. That's just name some of the familiar ones that you, you probably have heard of. So it gives us a sense of um, that we are in military combat. Those words are not used for nothing. They've been breathed and inspired by God to let us know that every day of our life we are in a battle or in war, but it's a good fight. And a good fight is one that we will win and overcome. There's a movement in the body of Christ, though, that in my opinion is creating a passive mentality. And and it's, 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 it's don't be too aggressive. Don't get in the pulpit and say the things that might drive people away. Um, we get, I've heard this over and over. You go to conferences, and they'll, they'll teach you how to preach in a certain way so that, you know, you can bring everybody into your church, and everybody will be happy, and nobody will leave the church. Now, I want our church to continue to grow. I don't want to put a limitation on the ministry. 
but I can not, nor will I compromise the word of God so I can get more people in the seats. That is not what God called me to do. He did not call me to do that. He did not call you to do that. We must speak the truth of what God's word says, even if it hurts. Now, my objective is not to hurt anybody. I, I don't, I, and I, my objective is not so people don't like me. I want people to love me, and I, want, I, want, I, I like that. But I realize I might have to be uncomfortable speaking the truth because the truth is the only thing that's going to set us free. And the truth will divide from time to time. And so um, people get offended so easily today. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That's just not my group of people. That's just not my deal. I don't have a lot of patience for people to get offended very easily on a personal level. On a pastoral level, I recognize and realize that some people do. And so I've got to learn to understand where people are coming from while I'm still speaking the truth and not make light of it. Uh, but I'm going to be honest, on a personal level, I consider people that are easily offended as very weak people that need to become much, 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 much stronger than they are. Now, the word of God will make you strong because it's like looking in the mirror, you find out what you need to change, what you need to do. It will make you stronger. We cannot live in the kingdom of God with a, a mentality of people always saying, well, I, I'm triggered. Well, I don't know what to tell you. People, you can, in this world today, it's like you can't say anything right without somebody being upset or offended or triggered about something. And it don't matter what your heart is anymore. People don't care what your heart is. They just think that's just what, the, you know, that's the way we're, no, no, no. That's just, it's a, it's a weird way to live life. And it's something that will inhibit the body of Christ from growing and maturing in him. Because Jesus said these words. He said, I came to bring a sword. You say, I've come to bring peace. He makes it very clear. He said, but I've come to bring a sword, and I will divide, even family member against family member. And how many has had that happen in your life? Not that you want that to happen, not that that's your aim or your goal, but it does happen because Jesus is a divisive term. His word is divisive at times. And I can tell you a little test you can, you can do tomorrow morning on the job, at the lunch break, real loud, start talking about Jesus, and you will find out that his name will bring division in the room. Most people are not going to like it. You might have a couple that might join in. Now, you can talk about God, and you can talk about Eastern mysticism, and you can talk about a lot of things, but you bring up Jesus, and everything changes in the atmosphere. Why? Because he, that's the nature of who he is. So we cannot learn the behavior of the world and take on the traits of the world saying, I'm going to make sure I say everything so good that everybody will just love me all the time. It's, it's impossible. It's a, it's, it'll never happen. And the truth is it will never set anybody free, okay? Now, look at first, uh, actually look at Psalms 110 and verse 1. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Now look what it says in the NIV. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing uh, on the day of your battle, on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, 
your young men will come to you like to do uh, from the morning's womb. Now the word arrayed, where it says uh, you will be arrayed in splendor, the word arrayed here means to place in proper or desired order, to marshal. It is to make an arrangement in troops to draw for battle, to draw into battle. So it's, it shows us a picture of bringing organization to a group of people in order to go out into war. You never go into war without first being trained. And you never go into war without being organized. There's a system, a way that you do it so there's the least amount of casualties and so that you can ultimately win the objective, right? And so he's saying this is what you're going to become. You're going to be arrayed. And then Psalm 68:11 says, the Lord gave the word, great was the company of those who proclaimed it. So God expects us, as he gives his word, it's as if he gives his command like a general to a soldier, and he expects us to carry out those commands because he ultimately knows how to win and defeat the enemy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 you therefore must endure hardship, the Bible says, as what? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Again, we'll be called a soldier. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Very clear the Bible says to us that we're not to be engaged in the world because if we're engaged in the world, world's ways, the world's system, how the world operates, if we'll continue to do that, we are going to be what? We're going to be let down. There's going to be a weight that's been put upon us. It's as if uh, the Bible says we entangle ourselves, right? But then he says, but what you do is, he said, you please God who enlisted you as a good soldier. So God wants us to line up. God doesn't want all of his people going all kinds of different directions. He wants to organize his people. He wants to bring order to his people. And that's why he raised up the church. The church in of itself could just be another religious organization. But it's not an organization. It's an organism. It's called the body of Christ. It is alive. And so when we come together, it's God's order. It's God's organization. He brings people together so that we can learn and grow in him, be touched by his spirit. If we need to be healed up, we get healed up, but we grow in him. But also we're being prepared for battle because we can't live in the building 24-7. We got to go back out there into the world. He says, so don't go the way of the world because the world will entangle you. It'll hold you back. If you're entangled, you can't move forward. You've been, you're, 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 you're snared. But he said, but do what I tell you. Be a good soldier. He said, because, he said, because I've enlisted you. By the way, the moment we got saved, we became enlisted in God's army. So my life is no longer my own. But American Christians believe that their life is their own. That's why they live their life the way they want. And they got a little Jesus, a little Holy Ghost, a little bit of God, a little bit of the Word, but a whole lot of themselves and how they feel. And don't go against what I feel or I'll get triggered or I'll get offended. And then now what happens, the Bible says it would be better. Watch this now. You see, the entanglement comes to hold you back from your destiny. And the entanglement is the moment you get offended. Amen. So that would make us, if we've been enlisted in God's army, that would make us, um, that would make us an, an active duty. And when we're not in active duty and we go away from active duty without, without the consent of a superior, that makes us AWOL. 
And AWOL means absence without leave. And how many knows that that is something that is criminal in the military? If you go AWOL, in other words, you leave your post without permission, you can go to prison for that, right? Same thing with God, not that you go to prison, but the fact that you are AWOL. You are no longer a part of what he has assigned for you to do. And every member in the body of Christ has an assignment. Touch your neighbor and say, you got one too. You got an assignment, right? Amen. And so your assignment must be carried out, but your assignment has to be carried out within the organization called the church. Now, obviously that's not always the case in every person's ministry, but at least it's funneled through. So we're all coming together, sharing in the victories, able to fight together. You may not like this, but the Bible says that God is a man of war. It actually says those terms. God is a man of war. And when did that war begin? It began in heaven. And so when Satan was in heaven and walked, was one of the sons of God and walked amongst the, uh, the angels of God, he began to defy the living God by saying, he's not the only one that's got answers. I've got answers too. And he began to say to, to, to himself and to those that would listen to him, a third of the angels, he was able to recruit. He said, look, when I do this, they all bite the dust. When I do that, they all listen to me. Because he was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. And so when it came time for worship, the first thing that people saw was the anointed cherub. And when the anointed cherub, who was in fact the song leader of heaven, come on, y'all, like a Pied Piper, but in a good way. He was up there and his, he, would, he would have glory on him. But it was not his glory. He was a reflection of the of God Almighty's glory. And when the glory hit him, it reflected across all the other angels and they would begin to worship God. Read your Bible. That's all in your Bible. Study the book of Isaiah. And so it's right there. But then one day he was rebellious and said, hey, God's not the only one. I also have power. I also have authority. And I will ascend to the sides of the north and I will sit in the seat of God and I will have a throne and I will dethrone God and I will become God. And God says, no. And I don't know what God did. Nobody knows exactly how it all worked. But I just see God just taking his little pinky, go pink like this, and Satan flew. Come on. He was, he was gone. The, Jesus said, I beheld Satan like a lightning fall to the earth. That was the moment he was ejected because there was rebellion. And the war in heaven began. Revelation chapter 12 says the war began. Michael and his angels did fight against the dragon and his angels. And the, the Bible says that his tail drew one-third of the stars of heaven or one-third of the angels of God. And he deceived them and tricked them. And now we have demon spirits that walk the earth that used to be in God's presence. Yes, war began. And God has always made it that way. In other words, when, when God decided for that to take place to, to judge his enemy, he made you and I. Where did he send Lucifer? To planet Earth. He sent him here. And what did he want us to do? To be like him. Not him, but like him. And to subjugate the earth and have dominion and authority over the power of the enemy. So prophetically speaking, we're living between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 19. But we are at the end. I said we're at the end. Now, no man knows the day nor the hour. I'm not trying to predict that. I believe we have time in the sense that we've got to, there's some prophetic things that have to come to pass, and we've got to see the greatest revival that's ever hit the earth, and we haven't seen that yet. But my point is, we are, we are there. We're in the foothills of the mountains, and we are at the end of the age. 
And Acts chapter 17, 26 says this, and he has made, uh, and he has made from one blood, God has, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God knew when and he knew where you were to be. He knew it from the foundation of the earth before the world even began. You were born for such a time as this. Quit thinking if I was born 30 years ago, everything would be better. Or if I was born more in the future. No, you were born for such a time as this. And the things you're going through that have been negative and the things you've been going through that's got you down, that's a demon spirit that is assigned, that's been assigned out of hell against you to keep you in the same place over and over and over again. And I have found out that my faith can kick the devil out of my life and how I use my faith when I start getting enthusiastic about what God has promised me. Amen. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him, ha, huh, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I have been, I have been chosen before the foundation of the world, and so have you to live in this moment of time right now. And I'm, all, I'm not belittled because I do believe we're in the end times. But let me just tell you something. People say, well, we're living in a crazy, I mean, this is the craziest time in the history of the world. No, it's not. No, no. You didn't live through the dark ages. You, you live, by the way, you happen to live in the greatest country in the world. <laughs> well, you can actually get ahead if you want to. Might be hard work, but you can do it. Try that in Venezuela. You can't do that there. Thank God. But we live in a time where we think things are the worst they've ever been. But the truth is, can I just kind of put it in perspective? It's been a whole lot worse in the earth. They're not going around right now taking Christians out of homes and brutalizing them, killing them, beheading them, putting them on crosses, feeding them to the lions. Amen. We ain't there yet. I've been persecuted. Someone said they didn't like me because I'm a Christian. Oh, come on. Get, get over yourself. I'm just hurt. No, come on now. They didn't take your family away from you and say, deny Christ and, or you'll never get to see your family again. Nobody did that to you today. Amen. And another reason why we think it's so bad is because we have 24-hour news cycles. Can I just talk for just, it's not part of my notes, but I'd like to say something about that. And now we got social media. So now we're in touch with everything in the whole wide world at any given moment. And so when something happens, we see it all. So when a cop does something bad to a, a, a person and does something bad to them, and we see how bad it really was and it wasn't just, and now it goes across the whole wide world and it stirs everybody up. Or we see something politically that goes wrong and it stirs everybody up, right? Or whatever's happened in the world, something happened. And that's been happening for eons of time. We just didn't know about it. I want to go back to those days. I was, I was, I was happier. <laughs> My point is, no, we shouldn't stick our head in the sand. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to tell you that it always looks worse now because it's a 24-hour news cycle, and those news people are in business to make money, and those people on social media you follow need to have them clicks because it's all about advertisement, and they're going to put clickbait out there constantly to get you agitated, and they recognize the more negative it is, the more you keep clicking or tuning in. Newsflash, newsler, every three seconds they can. It's the same doggone story you've been telling all day long. 
Nothing's changed, but it sounds, oh, my God, that, there's that noise again. It came on the boom, oh, my God. This thing's spinning. What's happening? Same story, right? So, so it's because we've never been so connected before. But the truth is, go back and do your history. And you'll find out it's been a whole lot worse. Now, I'm going to give you a little news, and you may not like this part, but it is going to get a whole lot more worse than it is today. And I don't know where you stand, but I stand with Jesus. He's coming back for his bride. I pray we get taken out of here. Hallelujah, in Jesus' name. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved uh, by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth. So I'm saying that God's chose you. You've been chosen for such a time as this. So we have a definite sense of the knowledge and purpose of God in our lives. Okay, I want to deal, well, I just have a few minutes left. Uh, I want to deal here with bad doctrine, okay, that, that I see being taught worldwide. And basically it's this, I'm going to surmise this, that, <clears throat> that's, that says we don't have to repent. Once we've asked Jesus to our hearts, that's all we have to ever have to do, and he has now forgiven you of all past, present, and future sin. Part of my job is to expose false doctrine, and that's a false doctrine that will lead you to hell because it's not what the Bible teaches can we just stick with the Bible and not get flaky and off, out of balance and off track? Because that's a doctrine of demons. It sounds good. It sounds really good or right, but it is not. And it's called the doctrine of inclusion. Now, the grace movement happened. It's happened there's been grace doctrine has been taught for many, many years on and off. And I am a grace guy. I believe in the grace of Jesus Christ because we're not saved without grace. You understand? His grace is so wonderful and covers me. It's amazing. But the grace move that began about 10 years ago, some of it's good. A lot of it is bad. And that grace movement now, I've watched a dear friend of mine whom I've loved and I've had in this pulpit many times over the years but have not had back in the last six or seven years because of his newfound stance on grace. And I have found out now that he's moved more into inclusion, which means that Jesus died for the sin of the world, meaning nobody even has to come to, nobody has to, come to Jesus. Nobody has to, it's already done. He's paid for it. Sounds great. Except for that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your cross and follow him. And I go on. And I could, I could, I could totally destroy that whole doctrine. But they're going a different direction. And this man, who I love, and I talked to just recently, maybe about six months ago. I love him. But he'll never come back to this pulpit again unless he repents from what he has done because it is a dangerous doctrine to tell people they no longer have to repent of their sin. The Bible says repent, believe. The Bible talks about, about that we have to have works meet unto repentance. It goes on and on and on. It's a whole doctrine of repentance. That's the first thing we have to learn. So yes, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. If I will repent... Your grace is sufficient to cover all of my sin. If I do not humble myself and repent 
and I live my life the way I want to live it, grace cannot come. And Jesus, the brother Paul said in the New Testament, he said, grace is wonderful, but not as an occasion to sin. Grace isn't something that just covers your sin. Grace keeps you from sinning. When you really understand it. And so it's a false doctrine that should never be taught in the body of Christ. And I believe that we do not have to have a sin consciousness. But we must have a humble and contrite heart so that we can operate in the gift of repentance. Asking God to forgive you is a wonderful privilege and knowing that he's so good that he will forgive you. Repentance means to confess your sin and to turn from it. It also means to return. Repent means to return. Pent is what? The top. You ever heard of a penthouse, right? To do what? To repent or return back to the top is what it means. And you can't do that till you turn from the direction that you are going in. So, yes, I feel bad about my sin. And sometimes I cry about my sin. And sometimes, and Lord, I, oh, geez, I'm so, I feel so bad. But it's not enough even to feel bad about it. Once I ask him to forgive me, i got to trust that he is forgiving me. Now I have to show action and work myself into the other direction. I can't keep going that direction. Are y'all flowing me? And in the modern church of America, that triggers people. That upsets them. Why? Truth is going to hurt. The truth is going to divide. Because the truth is the only thing that sets you free. So if I'm the devil, I'm going to attack the truth. Amen. You haven't turned if you haven't repented. Revelation 2.4 says, nevertheless... Jesus said, I have this against you. Who is he speaking to in the book of Revelation? The church. There's seven churches, which represents the body of Christ on earth. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. What does he say to do? Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you what? Repent. That's the church in the New Testament. How about Revelation chapter 2.14? But I, Jesus said, but I have a few things against you. He's rebuking the church. Because you have, uh, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, which is a, it's just a, uh, you know, it's a, um, uh, God, like a, it's like teaching other gods to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. In other words, you're saying, again, you can have Jesus and you can serve other gods too and have sexual immorality. Sure, Jesus understands you're going to get married someday. Keep living together and having sex. Wow, that went over like a lead balloon in this house. That shouldn't on a Thursday night. At least on a Thursday night, I got count on you people at least. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to go to hell. That's what the Bible says. I love you. I'm warning you. I'm telling you what the Bible says. And it's the same book I've got to live by. It's sexual immorality. Quit justifying. That's what he said. I've got this against you. Now, what does he do? Because he loves them, he's warning them. 
He said, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolotians, which, that think, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Your loving, lowly sheep, Jesus, said these things about the church. New Testament, last book of the Bible, to the church, Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, take on the, the, the identity of the world. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. What's he want them to do? Repent. So the things can be made right again. Revelation 3.1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are already uh, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come up upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. In other words, that's how disaster always comes, just on a blink of an eye out of nowhere. Samson did not know his strength had left him, but he was disobedient, and he kept being disobedient. God seemingly winked at it for a season, but the day came when he tried to break out of the binds that had him bound up, and he could not do it. His strength and anointed had left him. Repent is so powerful. So as we see the end times coming, everything is drawing to a conclusion, we have to realize that there is a battle, and that battle is over a great deception that is trying to stop the church, you and me, from advancing and winning souls. My mom and dad uh, gave us a little surprise visit. We were with them for a couple of days, and... and um, and we were talking about a lot of things, and they're in Nashville. They've been to a lot of churches. And he, he saw, my dad saw the, the video that we put together. If you haven't seen it, you can go to my Facebook page or my wife's, or you can go to um, our website. I think it's there. And it's the little clip we put together for on Easter of, uh, of the, the production. It's with music, and then I'm giving the altar call, and people raise their hands. And he said that he saw. They said, "Your mama, we cried." He said, "He said, and he said, I got to be a part of something like that in my life." He said because he said, "I come here, and all the churches are about themselves and about how to, you know, this for the church and this for Christians and that for Christians." He said, "It's all fine." He said, "In very, very few churches, preach the cross anymore and tell people they've got to make it right with the Almighty." And he said they're afraid because no one will raise their hand or give their life to Jesus or they're afraid that they may offend. He said, and here you are in a packed house with people you don't even know and you give a simple gospel message and 500 people in one day raise their hand to give their life to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that to remind us if we're not about souls, yes, we must disciple Yes, there's ministries that we must take care of, and there's things that we do. 
But beyond that, if we're not doing the real message and going after people who do not know Christ, we're missing the bigger picture of why we exist. Matthew 24, 14, I told you the Bible lesson, I'm almost done. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's the message of the hour. Are we going after our friends, our loved ones, and, and saying, look, he's real, he's awesome, he loves you, but there is truth. No man's promise tomorrow. Where are you going to spend eternity? And I have ideas for this year to help with that. One of them are the class. Rich, what's the name of the class again? Fire starters. And I had a word given to me about being a fire starter. And we're putting this class together about how you can flow in the gifts of the Spirit and take it to work or on the streets and win people to Jesus and give them a little word without saying, thus says the Lord, but just something you, as you're praying for them, and they go, how did you know that? You know, those, are, those kind of gifts are inside of you. We're going to teach you how not to be afraid and get out there and then give your testimony and tell people how they can be saved. We're going to do that this, this uh, coming uh, year. And then I'm going to close with this. The Bible says that we're to be like the sons of Issachar. And the Bible says the sons of Issachar were those who knew the times and the seasons. Matthew 24, 32 now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. We're at the door. Matthew 16, he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, Jesus said, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. We can figure things out in the natural, but what about the spiritual? First Thessalonians 5, 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, if the world says that, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are the sons of light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be watchful and be, let us watch and be sober. Right? Keeping in mind that he's, that he's coming back. Living a life as if he's going to show up tonight. Not just to keep myself pure from sin, but also to go after people who don't know him. Amen. And I will tell you, that there's so much more I want to say. don't have time. But I can tell you that in the word of God, the Bible gives three stories that Jesus talks about the last days, the ten versions, the five wise and the five foolish with their lambs. He gives a story of the three men with the talents, and then he gives a story of the sheep and the goats. And you know what was the outcome of all of them? He called the people wicked, lazy servants, and that they were complacent. And they did nothing with what he gave them to do. I wonder if we just got, all, and including myself, 
got our eyes off of us and more about the people that are around us in our life and really lived a life where we, we didn't argue and, and debate these dumb things and get angry and get offended and triggered so easily and put little things away and just learn to love people. Oh, we don't accept all their behavior and we don't accept all their sin, but we love the people. And that love is prevailing. It is powerful. It wins in every case. And then we shine that light. The Bible, we don't live in darkness. People mostly are drawn to the light. And if you shine the light, they're going to come. Somebody say amen.